Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here, you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Well, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her. If you have entered the perimenopause phase, I'm almost certain that you're going to want to stay tuned for this episode on best practices on improving your sleep during perimenopause. For those of you that know me, I'm 52, and this is probably the thing that that plagues me the most. Um, So I'm really excited to hear what our guest has to say. So we have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Valerie Cacho, and she is a specialist in sleep issues in the perimenopause. So welcome, Dr. Cacho. Thank you so much, Dr. Brenner. Very happy to be here. So tell us about yourself and how did you um, end up getting becoming a specialist in sleep in the perimenopause area? Yeah, great question. So a little bit of background about me. I'm a a medical doctor. I'm trained in internal medicine. And then I went into a year-long sleep fellowship program. And then I also did an online program in integrative medicine through Dr. Andrew Wiles program, University of Arizona. Um, I moved from California, where I was originally born and raised, to Hawaii about seven years ago. And um, I really set about practice there working with a hospital. And a lot of the people who would come to see me with difficulty sleep uh, were generally women. Um, A lot of primary care physicians aren't too familiar, aside from giving people sleeping pills, of how to help women sleep. And so over the years, I've really just honed in on that. Um, You know, there's a lot of gender bias within medicine, um, especially around sleep. Uh, A lot of the sleep apnea studies are in, in male. But, you know, as women go through menopause, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, there's a lot of different changes. And so, you know, really focusing on treating women who have a hard time sleeping has been my mission for the last several years. I'd love for you. I mean, I think everybody knows that when they don't sleep good, they just don't feel good. Um, And you just struggle for a lot of things. But I'd love for you to elaborate other than just not feeling good and being tired of like, what are some of the other reasons of why quality sleep is so important to our health? Oh, that's a good question. It's like almost where do we start? So I know, right? Like a, a top-down <laughs> approach talk for an hour just on that. <laughs> yeah. So talking from I'm starting from the head down. You know, sleep is really important for um, our bodies to rest. Um, you know, our brains are actually still pretty active when we sleep. There's different uh, processes that happen. One of the biggest is something called the glymphatic system, which is basically like the trash collector uh, for our brain. Um, throughout the day, there's toxins that are built up and when we sleep, especially when we get our deep sleep, uh, the junk from the day is cleaned out. And so if we don't get adequate amount of sleep, if we have disrupted sleep for, you know, whatever reason, then our brains actually don't work as well. So I like to really focus on the cognitive concerns. So problems with memory, I'm sure that's something concerning for for your audience as we get older, you know, our memory concerns, brain fog, um, 
being able to focus and mood is definitely a, a big one if you're talking about you know the br- overall brain health and then going further down right um, your heart what's going on with our cardiovascular system if we're not getting an adequate amount of sleep whether it be from undiagnosed medical sleep conditions or maybe purposefully or not intentionally depriving ourselves from sleep. Uh, Sleeping less than six hours has been associated with increased risk for cardiovascular disease, um, higher blood pressure rates. Um, um, What else? We talk about our metabolism. Um, There's basically uh, hormones that affect our appetite and our satiety, ghrelin and leptin. So ghrelin, I always think of think of like a gremlin, makes you want to eat more. And they have done studies, uh, night shift workers, you know, like the nurses' health study, and they also took a look at college age students. And when they don't get enough sleep, what happens? Well, they tend to crave more um, fast. F- fuel, which I like to call simple carbohydrates, junk food, right? Because that quick fiber gives us more energy. But really, it's your body telling you that you need to get more rest because that ghrelin goes up, uh, makes you want to eat more, and then leptin goes down. So we talked about our our brains, our hearts, our cardiovascular system. Um, What else that we can talk about in in terms of What about even cancer? Can it increase your risk of cancer? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, And that's sort of, you know, really interesting for... Um, we, we know the data in uh, night shift workers again. So like the nurses health study, we took a look at um, overnight workers. What happens when you don't get enough sleep? There's higher incidence of breast cancer. And why is that? You know, I still think we're looking at the data, but we do know that women, um, if you had an initial episode of breast cancer and you actually take melatonin. Um, so melatonin is a natural hormone that's released in, in darkness and helps us sleep. Um, it may have actually have some anti-cancer properties to it because there's a decreased incidence of the second event um, for women who do take some, some melatonin. So yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, there is increased cancer risk as well from not getting enough sleep. Yeah. So this is really so important. Um, how did this become your area of interest? Yeah, so I, I grew up in a family of physicians. My father's actually a cardiologist, and I knew pretty early on I didn't want to be a cardiologist, given the amount of work um, that he uh, provides. You know, he's an interventionalist, so leaving for the hospital in the wee hours of the morning. And then one of his good friends actually is a sleep physician. So I heard him give a lecture about it. It was probably maybe high school or college. And the first I found out that sleep was actually its own specialty. So throughout medical school, um, I you know followed some sleep doctors and then residents you know I did a month training in it as well and so I just really dive down into it and you know it works well for me because I like to take an integrative approach I'm really interested in preventive medicine lifestyle medicine you know how can we reduce our risk um, for cardiovascular disease for Alzheimer's for dementia for cancer right and when you take a look at it sleep is so foundational it's one of our pillars of health you know, for a long time, we focused, you know, just in our culture on diet and exercise. And those are fantastic things really to focus on. However, I like to offer that if you not, if you don't get enough sleep, guess what? It's so easy to drive through the drive through and just pick up some fast food. Because if you don't mm-hmm. have enough energy, think of all the energy it takes to decide, um, you know, how to cook a healthy meal, go to the grocery store, go home, cook it, and then clean up after yourself versus, all right, you know, I've get enough sleep i'm stressed out for my job got family to take care of let me just go through the drive-thru and have a quick meal so i think sleep makes you make better decisions in around your health and that's the diet aspect and guess what if you have more energy from sleeping more you're going to want to go to the gym right you're going to want to move your body Uh, sleep uh, gives you that makes it easier to be healthier 
I couldn't agree more. In our practice, we do a lot of hormone stuff and we ask people about sleep. And I say, like, we can balance your thyroid, replace your sex steroids or your menopausal hormones, like, till the cows come home. But if you're not sleeping good, it's it's going to be difficult to make you feel good. Right. Yeah. So why is this such a, a, a common reason, I guess, specific, I guess this is a two-part question. Why is it more common with women and why does it happen as we age? Yeah, that's a really, really great question, a loaded question. <laughs> so we can take um, a multi-pronged approach. And I recently looked at a, a research article about it that talked about eight different factors why women uh, through the perimenopause, menopause transition have difficulty with sleep. So if you start with just from what happens as women go through menopause, right? I'm sure you can speak more to this than I about the fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone levels, right? So progesterone is also known as a relaxation hormone. And so sometimes when that decreases, that can result in um, difficulties with sleep. Some of the research studies are really interesting around this where they've actually done subjective surveys of, of women's quality of sleep as they're going through perimenopause. And what they found is that the rate of change of FSH, so the follicle stimulating hormone, has been associated with poor sleep. And then in other research studies, they've actually put women who've had, you know, fluctuating levels of hormones, specifically high FSH levels in the lab. So talking about the sleep lab and actually measuring their brain waves, measuring the quality of sleep that they have from the objective standpoint. And it doesn't always come out to be the same. So our subjective experience doesn't always relate to what um, researchers see in the lab. So that's one thing. And I think another thing, too, is, you know, as, as you know, women have higher rates of uh, mental health conditions, right? Anxiety, depression. And, you know, really how I describe sleep to a lot of my patients is, well, sleep happens when your brain waves slow down, your muscles relax, and you lose consciousness. So, you know, if you have a lot of anxiety for whatever reason, um, hormone fluctuations, bodily changes, work stress, family stress, that can actually keep you from falling asleep. And then when you don't have enough sleep, right? You know, all that gunk from the days and getting um, cleaned out. So your emotions um, can be running high. You know, one of the things that we learn in sleep fellowship is mood is one of the first things to go if you don't get enough sleep, right? Mm -hmm. So we talked about some of the hormone fluctuations. Um, we talked about how stress can play a role. And what about aging? Aging in and of itself, right? As we know, it's associated with medical health problems. You know, higher rates of arthritis, just the wear and tear of our bones. Um, you know, just feeling uncomfortable, not being able to sleep on on your back anymore because the muscles of your upper airway are narrowing and collapsing your tongue is following you back waking you up which is called obstructive sleep apnea which is something that we see uh, more oftentimes as women go through menopause because of hormone fluctuations because of weight distribution issues where you know we tend to gain more weight you know maybe it's an issue of our metabolism slowing down but also maybe it's an issue of you know stress keeping you from sleeping and then not having enough energy to eat healthy food and then you're gaining weight and then you're getting sleep apnea so it's like the cycle can um, be repeating itself. Um, so yeah, you know, having rates of underlying medical sleep conditions, obstructive sleep apnea is one of them. Uh, if you take a look at the premenopausal women to the postmenopausal women, some of the research shows that rates are two to three times higher. Um, so obstructive sleep apnea is still something that's really underdiagnosed in general population, but even more so in, in women. Yeah, it's like this chicken or the egg or this snowball rolling downhill of mood issues can make you not sleep, but not sleeping can give you mood issues. And 
being overweight can make you have sleep issues and sleep apnea and, you know, but not sleeping can make you overweight that leads to sleep apnea. Right. And then we haven't even talked about hot flashes yet. (laughs) And so the hot flashes and the night sweats, right, can uh, add to the milieu of why women have a hard time sleeping during um, menopause. But, you know, I think with all that is said is that there's this great people out there like yourself that are talking about um, women's health issues that are bringing up the conversations and really giving people hope that there are solutions. I don't know if you've ever been on any of these sort of message boards on social media where there's a lot of despair out there. You know, um, I went read one research article recently that talked about how 10 years women can have difficulty with their sleep before a doctor will actually order them a sleep te- a sleep apnea test to see if that's the cause because oftentimes they get you know they get told that oh you're just having anxiety and that's why you know you're not sleeping you know go try this you know antidepressant or maybe it's your thyroid issue and that's why you're having difficulty sleeping so you know there is a lot of gender bias um with in medicine and then you know it, when I was a medical student a little over 10 years ago, I only had one, maybe two lectures about sleep. And so it's really not emphasized enough. Yeah, because most, at least around where I live, um, I see, I would say the majority of people in the perimenopause are taking a prescription medication like Trazodone, Ambien, Lunesta, Something like that. What are your thoughts on those kinds of sleep aids? I have yet to meet anybody or even myself when I have taken those in the past. When you take them chronically, I've yet to know anybody that says, oh, I feel great. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and that's such a good question. I'd say as a whole, most sleep doctors don't prescribe sleeping pills. Um, And the reason for that is we like to look for, you know, why is someone having a difficulty time sleeping? You know, typically, right, stress, anxiety, uh, untreated medical sleep conditions like restless leg syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea. So I like to think of sleeping pills just like I think of pain medications, right? You know, they are helpful, they're beneficial in the short term, but in the long term, you know, are we really doing our patients any benefit by allowing them to continue on them? You know, there is the recommended treatment for insomnia, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's something that the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Sleep, Medica- uh, sleep Physicians um, also re- really recommend. But the problem with that is there's lack of access to behavioral sleep. Uh, therapist and not a lot of sleep doctors take the time or are trained to do good cognitive behavioral therapy. So, you know, taking sleeping pills, what they do, oftentimes they work on the GABA system. So Ambien, Lunesta, the Z medications or the benzos um, really can help someone by slowing down your brain waves. Um, but if we're on them chronically, you know, even some research shows, I think up to 16 times a, a year has been associated with memory concerns. Women, you know, if you take a look at the FDA approval for these medications, Ambien or Zolpidem, the generic form, was the first gender recommendation where, you know, 10 milligrams for men, 5 milligrams starting dose for women. You know, there, the way we metabolize this drug is a little bit different. Yeah, so those are some things to keep in mind. So memory issues in the short run, like, oh, I don't remember going to bed last night or more memory issues like dementia and that kind of thing. 
I would say both, right? Because if it puts you into a deeper sleep, you may have some amnesia. Um, one of the side effects, and it's why the FDA changed the, the dosage, is for complex sleep behaviors. So I don't know if you've heard these stories, but I had a, a patient recently tell me that she got in her car, drove down to the local 7-Eleven, got an energy drink, and came back home and had no recollection for mm-hmm. it. Right. It's pretty scary. Some people, yeah. you know, are just a lot of sleep eating, waking yeah, up sleep and eating. eating. Exactly. Yep. Sleep eating. Not everybody has them, but you know, they're, it is very concerning. Um, and then yes, for chronic people who are on it for, um, I guess say longer than three months, but probably more closer to several years have more memory concerns. And then as you get older, right, you know, imagine being elderly, being on a sleeping pill, having to wake up to go to the restroom, feeling unbalanced and then falling, right? So increased risk for falls is something that we also caution of. Yeah. So even over the long run, I knew about trazodone increasing the risk of dementia, but even drugs like Ambien and Lunesta can increase the risk of... Yeah, they pretty much all do. And, you know, I don't think the research has parsed out, is it the medication itself or having insomnia? And I would say it's probably a little bit of both, right? If you're undersleeping and also, you know, what are the medications doing to your brain uh, that can increase your risk? Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned is something called a sleep study. I'm not sure everybody knows, like, what what is a sleep study and and who needs it? Good question. So I'm biased because I'm a sleep doctor. I think everybody (laughs) should probably get a sleep study if you have difficulty sleeping. But typically what a sleep study looks for is a breathing concern. So one of the most common medical sleep conditions that I treat is obstructive sleep apnea. So what is obstructive sleep apnea? It's all in the name. It's a physical blockage of the upper airway. Generally, it's the tongue falling back because at night when we sleep, all our muscles relax. And basically we're choking ourselves when we sleep. And so sometimes we know this because we can wake up choking or gasping. Sometimes our bed partner will tell us that we stop breathing and sometimes we don't know. And we can just wake up early in the morning feeling wide awake, unable to fall back asleep. Or not even that, just feeling tired you know, after lunch and, and really not sure why. So what a sleep study does, it monitors several uh, parameters. Um, there's home sleep apnea tests and also in-lab sleep studies. So the in-lab sleep study I'll start with is a very sophisticated test. Uh, we put EEG leads on your head. And so it's monitoring your brain waves, looking to see if you're awake or asleep, what stage of sleep you're in. There's a nasal cannula in your nose that's monitoring the air flowing in and out. That's a, a way that we can tell if you're breathing or holding your breath. Um, there's a sensor for um, your chin so we can see if you're grinding your teeth. Some people grind their teeth if they have sleep apnea or sometimes it could be stress-related or TMJ or jaw issue related. There's a belt around your chest to see if your lungs are moving up and down. There's sensors on your legs called EMG that see if your legs are kicking. And then there's a pulse oximeter. So you measure your oxygen and your heart rate. And there's also video monitoring and then a sleep technician that watches you sleep. And so what we look for for obstructive sleep apnea is, is if you're holding your breath for at least 10 seconds, Um, five times an hour or greater. So five times is where researchers decided, okay, that's where we draw the line in the sand. And if you have difficulty breathing above that number, then that's diagnostic of obstructive sleep apnea. And it's broken down into mild, moderate, and severe. And so I think uh, some of the reasons why women are underdiagnosed is because their symptoms are generally milder. 
Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you don't actually have to snore to have obstructive sleep apnea. So that's something um, to keep in mind as well. And then there's home sleep apnea tests where technology is just so great now that you don't have to sleep in the lab anymore. You can sleep in the comfort of your own home. And it's the same thing, except we don't look at your brain waves. Um, some of the kits just have an actograph. So it's like a, a medical grade Fitbit that will tell us if you're awake or asleep based on movement. The sensor in your nose that monitors uh, whether or not you're breathing and then a, a belt around your waist to see if your lungs moving up and down and then the pulse oximeter. So really what we're looking for for obstructive sleep apnea is your flow and then your oxygen levels. And so it's interesting that you, one of the first things you said is uh, you recommend everybody to do it. Um, what about that person of, well, I just can't turn my brain off and I can't go to sleep, but once I fall asleep, I'm good. Would that person still be a candidate for, I need yeah, to Yeah, so that's a good distinction. Yeah, I would say probably not. So it, when we take a look at insomnia, we look at sleep onset. And so that's the case that you just um, mentioned, Dr. Brenner's having a hard time falling asleep. So sleep apnea only happens when you're asleep. So if you have a hard time maintaining sleep, sleep maintenance insomnia, or you're waking up for unclear reasons, then that's uh, typically from obstructive sleep apnea, if not another condition. Now, I do have patients who have a hard time falling asleep because they know when they are asleep, sometimes they dream that somebody's choking them or they have the nightmare that they're underwater and they can't breathe. So you know, you're sort of parsing out, you know, okay, so you can't sleep. Is it falling asleep or staying asleep? So people who have a hard time staying asleep, snore, gas, choke, or feel tired, um, even waking up multiple times to urinate. I think that's something that we can talk about as well. You know, that's, yeah. those are symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea, the falling asleep. So even waking up many times to urinate is a symptom of sleep apnea? Yeah. And that's something that's not often discussed. I I'm never, I, about it. That, yeah. I learned something today. I never knew yes, that. Yes. Yes. So think about plumbing. All right, Dr. Brenner. So think about plumbing where you live. What happens if your, your pipes are blocked off downstream? There's more pressure. So uh, relate that to your body. If there's a narrowing in the upper airway, then your lungs actually have to take bigger breaths, right? So there's, you know, you have increased intrathoracic pressure, right? The lungs and the heart are within the same cavity. That pressure gets transmitted to the heart, the top part of the heart, the atria actually stretches and signals down to your kidneys to tell you to wake up and urinate. Yeah, so oftentimes men, you know, have this and they get put on a um, BPH uh, medication for their prostate. But, you know, what's going on in women? So if they're not diabetic, if they're not on a diuretic, a pill to make them urinate at night, you know, could this potentially be um, obstructive sleep apnea cause, right? And so how do we treat it? Well, if you have obstructive sleep apnea, we open up the pipe. You know, we use a machine called a CPAP machine, which is this positive airway pressure that keeps the airway open. And so once the airway is open, right, that signal from the lungs to your heart to your kidneys isn't there anymore. And you can actually stay asleep better. So yeah, hmm. something, yeah, to... How many times would you consider waking up to use the restroom abnormal or what is acceptable? I'd say two and above is abnormal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think something, um, a distinguishing question is, is, you know, how do you urinate during the daytime? If you're, you know, I'm sure you know the symptoms, right? You know, the stress and continence, that's a little bit different um, than the nocturia. So, right. I also think, at least for me personally, is it, is it really, because, you know, everybody knows like, oh, I should drink more water and all that kind of thing is, it, and I try to do that too, but I try to get it done by like three o'clock. Oh, wow. In the afternoon. Yes. And then really limit my fluid intake, like 
with dinner and after dinner. And that really makes a big difference for me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, but it's, I think it's also interesting, right? Because research does show that people who don't have sleep apnea, right? Let's talk about insomnia, you know, waking up and go to the bathroom. So like a question I like to ask is, well, do you wake up because your bladder is full and then you have to urinate or are you waking up? And then since you're already awake, then you go to the bathroom. So I always like to rule out sleep apnea and then actually treatment for insomnia with cognitive behavioral therapy has shown to decrease uh, those awakenings to have to urinate. Interesting. For people that aren't, aren't familiar with that term, what does that actually entail cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy, good question. Um, it's, it's a multi-approach. So there's cognitive behavioral therapy for a bunch of different type of conditions, you know, anxiety, depression, PTSD, eating disorders. So one specifically for insomnia is, um, includes sleep hygiene. So we learn, you know, the habits that we should have in and around sleep. You learn about lifestyle factors. Um, you learn about um, sleep science. So the biological processes that help control our sleep is discussed there. But I think one of the biggest part is the cognitive part. So the cognitive restructuring. So it's taking a look at the thoughts that you have in and around sleep. Um, a lot of people that I speak to who have insomnia feel like they can't turn off their brain. That, you know, they've never been able um, to relax their mind. And so it's taking a look, the cognitive part is taking a look at those thoughts and actually questioning them and replacing them or transitioning them to thoughts that are actually more beneficial. So cognitive restructuring is really helpful for people who have insomnia. Sometimes patients have told me, I've never been a good sleeper. My whole life, I've never been able to sleep well, even since I was a kid. And then we sort of take a look and, you know, break that down. Is that really true? Well, how do you do on vacation, right? You know, <laughs> or right. how did you do before you started this stressful job or before your parents got sick? You know, I'm, I'm sure you were sleeping, you know, at least a couple hours a night. Um, but sometimes it's really interesting at, at night. Uh, and I'm not sure why. And I think it's just because... When it's dark and it's quiet, we've been trained that we should be asleep, you know. And so if we're not asleep, there must be something wrong with me. And then we tend to catastrophize. And so all the scary thoughts come out when it's dark at night, maybe just from watching scary movies as well. I have a good friend who's also a sleep doctor and a psychiatrist in, in her culture, in the Indian culture. If you wake up between 2 to 4 a.m., 2 to 5 a.m., it's actually a sacred time. It's a sacred space where they don't catastrophize. They actually start meditating and doing their yoga breathing. So I think there's some cultural elements to this that are pretty interesting. Interesting. Are there any other tests you recommend other than a sleep study? Uh, for typically no in terms of tests for uh, sleep apnea. I do screening questionnaires. So, um, you know, if someone is not really interested in sleeping in laboratory home sleep study there are screening tools such as like the stop bang which is a questionnaire that looks for sleep apnea for insomnia i use something called the insomnia severity index um, but a lot of what i do since i practice more integratively is i like to give people the time and space to just talk um, and then from there together we formulate a plan of care you know what are your health goals what's bothering you 
and what's something that we can talk about? What are some tools and strategies we can start to develop to allow yourself to um, improve your sleep? I know that there's research looking into biomarkers, so blood tests that can look for sleep apnea and even insomnia, but um, they're definitely not mainstream yet or available to us, so. What are your thoughts on alcohol? From my perspective, I see a lot of women specifically of, well, you know, I just have a glass of wine or two to help me fall asleep. Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess it's like where from what perspective? From a sleep perspective, if you are going to drink alcohol, I would suggest to do it earlier in the day. I'm more of a recommender of a day drinker, maybe alcohol with brunch or lunch. And really the reason behind that is twofold. The, you know, alcohol has a lot of sugar. Sugar is not good for a lot of things, but actually isn't good for sleep. Um, we see from research studies, there's more arousals. People wake up more frequently from a high, simple carbohydrate sugar load at night. So a diet in high fiber actually promotes better sleep. And then the breakdown of alcohol, right? So if you, we have actually pretty decent data that shows people who drink alcohol, then we monitor them in the sleep lab. Alcohol makes you feel sleepy, but when, the, when, when it's broken down, it actually can disrupt the different stages of your sleep and actually wake you up. So if you are someone who's going to drink probably closer to a happy hour situation rather than a nightcap and then go to bed. Interesting. Yeah, I found that if I if I drink alcohol, I don't sleep good that night. And drinking wine is worse than vodka. So I wonder if it's because of the sugar content. Yeah, I, there was a study that I did re- review not too long ago. And it, yeah, I think it is the sugar, you know, with, with the grapes. And it's the clear alcohols that don't disrupt our sleep as much. <laughs> oh. so. so there's actually science behind. I told my husband that I'm like, I think I just do better if I have vodka. Yeah, the, the the research was like wine and then beer and then, you know, like the clear um, liqueur as in terms of, you know, easier or bit more beneficial or better sleep. Yeah. Well, while we're on the sugar um, topic, what are your thoughts about timing of eating before bed? Yeah, that's such a, an interesting uh, thing to talk about as well, because, you know, the way we live our lives now is almost like moment to moment, rushing and rushing. Um, I, it, I have young kids, so we eat pretty early because we want to start the wind down process pretty early. Um, but I know, I mean, in some cultures, right, you don't eat until 9, 10 p.m. Uh, it, it is better to eat earlier, maybe two to three hours, right? You want your body to be able to digest the food. If you lie down too fast, I'm sure, as you know, you can have more problems with heartburn, um, acid reflux. Um, and you want your food to be able to digest, right? You know, the, the, but also it depends on the type of food. So the timing of food is also important, but the type of food, um, because right, you know, after a big Thanksgiving meal, you can feel really sluggish, right? From all the carbs (laughs) that you've eaten. That's really, um, um, yeah, it can make you feel sleepy, but looking at what the research shows, the, the high carb load can actually disrupt the sleep architecture as well. So higher saturated fats and simple carbohydrates are something that you probably want to avoid at night. Yeah. So no more milk and cookies. <laughs> yeah. For me, at least personally, I think it's, uh, it, you know, it's kind of the Goldilocks syndrome is if, if I also go to bed hungry, there are times I'm like, I got to eat like I'm waking up because I'm hungry. 
Yeah, and this is something that I, I think we are lacking in research. So I don't know how you feel about continuous glucose monitors, um, but you know, oh, I'm a huge popu- fan of those. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, they're very popular now, and I've seen through some you know my my friends on social media who are physicians talking you know in their middle age, looking into you know I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I'm not sure why, but then their their glucose was dropping to the 60s and 70s. So you know if you eat early, make sure you digest it's probably okay to have a little snack before you go to bed. Maybe you in fact need it if your blood sugar drops. Um, because right, these are the normal mechanisms in our body that are keeping us alive, right? You know, we, we you shouldn't have too low blood sugars. Um, our blood sugar should be at a certain level that um, that sustains us, right? Because, but we're also fasting. So it, it's really interesting now because intermittent fasting is so popular. I don't think we have enough data in around um uh, nighttime awakenings and blood sugar yet in the maybe non-diabetic population. So I hope that's something that researchers yeah. are discussing. But I know people who do feel better um, after taking a snack at night <laughs> or before bedtime. And yeah. Then, yeah through. Any advice for the shift workers? That's a population where I just feel like, Ugh, I don't have any great solutions. And I mean, I look back of, and I'm sure you can the same of when we did residency of when I worked the night shift for two months, like I just felt like the living dead the entire two months. Like, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Getting flashbacks now. Yeah. And we didn't have the, um, work hour restrictions <laughs> as yeah. they do now. So there are chronotypes. So there is a certain population who feel better or night owls feel better being awake at night. If you can link your chronotype to your career, to your schedule, then that's actually much better, right? So people who do night shift, um, if you feel most awake at night, then that's better. There's a good questionnaire for this. It's called the morningness, eveningness questionnaire. Some people just choose to work at night, but their internal clock or their circadian rhythm um, does not allow for that. <laughs> Meaning it's, you know, like you know, probably how we were feeling really um, not well the next day from staying up all night. With that said, I think it's not good for our overall health, but we have 24 hour societies. So where should I start? I would suggest, um, overall night shift workers sleep less. Um, if you could anchor a time between when you're working and not working by three to four hours, which can be difficult if you have kids. So basically what I'm trying to say is tell your brain, have that set time so you know you're going to get sleep regardless when you're working or not working, overlap by three to four hours, um, then it can lessen the blow. If you can't do that because of kids, then you know make sure if you're sleeping during the daytime, um, you use blackout curtains, block as much light as possible. Even when driving home from work, if it's sunny out, use the um, blue light blocking glasses to make sure that you're not getting that light because um, light is stimulating and can wake you up. Um, melatonin may be helpful. Um, melatonin is really a heated topic because it's adultered. Um, the qu- there's quality concerns. Um, but yeah, night shift is hard. If you are a, a night owl, then it's okay. <laughs> if yeah. not, then, you know, get as much sleep as you can. Is it best, you know, I, I recently saw a patient who was an ER physician and e, is it best to always stay on night shift and kind of shift of this is when I typically am awake, this is when I typically sleep, or when you're not working, go back to 
being awake during the day and sleeping at night? Yeah. And I would say it's, it depends on how often you're flipping back and forth. So just imagine like, you know, I know some people do every other week. Um, that's probably easier than every two to three days going from night to days. And it's like traveling, right? You're traveling between, you know, where we are to Europe and then two days we're traveling back, you know, and your, your body is just quite confused. So if if you can do longer stretches of nights and then flip back to days, that's probably more beneficial than flipping back and forth every two to three days. Sure. I agree. And last but not least is uh, you mentioned melatonin. Um, I'll just kind of make it a little bit more broader about, you know, the whole supplement industry is you walk into any grocery store online. Um, I'm not sure if you do supplements in your office, but a lot of people like to self-treat. There's been some recent controversy about melatonin of maybe if you can comment on melatonin, CBD, or even people uh, taking THC or gummies, magnesium, any of those kind of things that people can get their hands on without seeing a physician. Yeah, good, good, good question. And yes, so we can start with melatonin. In 2017, there was a big research article that just basically discussed the, we don't know what you're getting in the bottle. There are some uh, reputable brands. You can check out Consumer Labs. Um, it's uh, basically a third party that reviews the quality of different supplements. And do you in fact need it, right? So from a sleep medicine perspective, we use melatonin for shift work, jet lag, and then um, a condition called REM behavior disorder. There is research that shows as a woman gets older, right, as people get older, age 55 and above, our pineal gland where melatonin is made and released, we may have lower levels of melatonin. And then um, specifically a study talked about women who use three milligrams of melatonin for three months during menopause reported better quality sleep. And this was subjective reports. So there probably is something to it, um, but make sure the melatonin that you're using is high quality um, and how much is enough melatonin. So if you take a look at how much our brain actually gives us, it's 0.3. And, you know, I've seen like three milligrams, six milligrams, 10 milligrams. I think I've even heard of patients taking up to 50 milligrams or greater. So melatonin isn't without side effects, um, hangover type effect, increased dreams, low blood pressure. I've seen in some patients, nausea, vomiting. Um, but I'd say with that said, it's generally well tolerated. Mm -hmm. It's just, are you just spending a lot of money on it? Yeah, so that's one thing. Um, CBD, THC, very interesting. Um, it's a plant. And so um, with plants, you know, I had a, a friend who gave a lecture about CBD for sleep. And, you know, the way he described it, it's like grapes, right? So, you know, the environment matters. The soil matters, right? The temperature matters. And in U.S., right, you know, there are states that have decriminalized it, but federally, it, you know, it's still, um, what is it, a class one scheduled, you know, medication, a drug of abuse. So I think that limits the amount of research we can do on it. With that said, sleep happens when your brainwaves slow down and you relax. Um, 
there is research that shows a higher ratio of CBD to THC is helpful. You know, some people think of THC as more of the psychoactive component. So a ratio of uh, 60 to 1 CBD to THC or even up to 30 to 1 can be um, helpful. And the thing about cannabis is that it's got something called the entourage effect. So it, is it just the CBD? Is it just a THC? Are there other components um, within the plant that are, are beneficial for us? Um, CBN is something that's promising to help us sleep as well. So I think it's one of those things I know it's pretty expensive. Um, I would suggest, you know, if, you know, what's the end game here, right? Are you going to be dependent on something that costs you a hundred bucks a month? Right. Or can we look for, you know, maybe it's untreated sleep apnea or maybe, you know, working on your stress um, is something that's more beneficial. Magnesium, I do like to recommend magnesium a lot. You know, the reason there's a couple fold that works on GABA. So the GABA system is actually, you know, sleep um, promoting. It's the same system that um, things the Z drugs work on, the benzodiazepines and the Ambien and Lunesta. Um, magnesium also can help relax the muscles. Um, you know, we use it in pregnancy, right, for blood pressure. Um, the thing about magnesium is that there's different forms and sometimes it can cause diarrhea. So people who have more like muscle skeletal issues, maybe like restless legs or um, like muscle aches and pains, and I like to recommend magnesium. Um, and it's pretty readily available, but just caution on the type that you're using because it can cause diarrhea. I also like to discuss lavender, oral lavender, or even diffusing lavender as aromatherapy. That can be helpful for sleep. Lavender actually has been shown in some research where we've took nursing home patients who were on sleeping pills on benzos and lavender helps uh, reduce those withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, so that's actually something. And it, we haven't seen any of the um, safety problems with it, side effects, um, like we do with the sleeping pills. And there's also passion flower, hops, um, lemon balm. So yeah, a lot of different herbs that are probably beneficial. But as a whole, what I like to recommend to patients or you know, the discussion is that sometimes your brain is just so powerful. It can overcome the chemical effects of these substances you're taking. So it, it goes you know, to take a step back, you know, why are you really having a hard time sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. Is it those ruminating thoughts? So I, I think the whole cognitive restructuring, um, since I practice integratively, I also like to uh, bring in mindfulness um, um, to the mix. And, you know, how can we learn how to train our brain to be calm and relaxed so it's easier for us to fall asleep rather than, you know, us paying a lot of money on things that may or may not work. Right. So what is the process when when people see you as patients? Um, I know you mentioned you do telemedicine. Is that just for California and Hawaii residents? And what's the process and how can people find you? Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Brenner. Yeah, so I am a licensed and I have malpractice in California and Hawaii. So my medical practice is available to residents of those states. Um, they can find me on my website, which is Sleep Life Med. I call my office and I have an intake. So um, I like to ask patients a lot of questions about their sleep. So I like to say the more I know about you, the better I can help. Um, if they need a sleep study, then we go um, with that. If they're more insomnia, then I, you know, I have individualized classes. So I am trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. I like to bring in mindfulness approaches. We talk about supplements if that's something that they're interested in. And then I also provide clinical hypnotherapy. Um, so that's my medical practice. And so outside of that, I've been developing um, a women's sleep um, program, an educational program with coaching and courses called Sleepphoria. And that's for people who aren't in those states, right? You know. 
40 to 60% of women during perimenopause and menopause have difficulty sleeping. So I think that's a lot of women out there. And there's a lot of information that I think I can get to them to help them improve their sleep. So um, those are two ways that they can find me depending on where they live. Well, thank you. This was so helpful. I learned, I myself learned a lot and I can't imagine that this wouldn't be beneficial to really any woman in their late 30s on up. So thank you so much for this great information. My pleasure, Dr. Berger. Thanks for having me on. I had a great time as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.